Now I've been trying to step back from that and focus on that big picture. And, you know, you and I have discussed this over scotch at some points or other of, you know, what do we need to know out of this population? We need to know who is doing what, who's making products that matter to the animal. And they may make an end product that matters to another microbe that then matters to the animal. But you've got to know what their ecological niches are. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. With early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt, Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Hello and welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. Today I'm excited to chat with Dr. Todd Calloway. Uh, Todd's an associate professor in the Department of Animal and Dairy Science at the University of Georgia. He's a ruminant microbiologist who graduated from the University of Georgia and then completed his PhD in microbiology at Cornell. He joined the Ag Research Service of the USDA and served as a research microbiologist in the Food and Feed Safety Research Unit in College Station, Texas. During this time and continuing till today, he's published over 250 referee journal articles, over 40 book chapters, and he edited three books. Uh, he's re received several awards from the American Society of Animal Science and uh, the Ag Research Service of the USDA, as well as the 2023 American Feed Industry Association Ruminant Nutrition Research Award. His research is focused on the role of the gut microbiota in the nutrition of cattle and how the complex environment of the cattle gastrointestinal tract can impact food safety and production efficiency. He's led research focused on improving digestibility and altering end products from microbial fermentation, including impacts on methane, ammonia, volatile fatty acids, and, and nutrient digestibility. So, Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Gladly. Thanks, bud. I appreciate it, Barry. So how are things going at Georgia? You've been there for how long now? I've been here for just completed my sixth year. So been here long enough to kind of know where the bathrooms are and, you know, where, where you can get around the building. So... And so even though you're a student there, you actually are in a different building, correct? It's a completely different building. And the last person just left here who was a professor when I was a student. So now it's a completely oh, okay. clean slate. But yeah, when Mikey's in retired, that was the last professor who taught me as a student. 
So thinking back to your time as a student, what, what did you start, uh, what did you begin studying when you entered college? Did you start in microbiology? No, I didn't. I started at, like most of us, as a, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And I was working okay. for yeah. a vet in here in central Georgia and, you know, had worked up to the point where I was doing surgeries by the time I was in college. And um, we had a program here, an accelerated start to vet school after three years. And I got turned down by that. And it was the first time I'd ever been told no on something academically. And I kind of got a little mad, to be honest, and a little bit of a jerk. So I pasted the rejection letter right over my bed. And I can show you the pic the, the letter, and it's got a little thumbtack hole in it, where I saw that every morning and every evening for a year. And I started working in a nutrition lab with Marshall Streeter um, back in the day you know, when he was still here at Georgia. So we started doing ruminant nutrition and working a little with Scott Martin, a rumen microbiologist. And, you know, it was kind of cool seeing how the microbes affected the animal. And then I was faced with that choice of I got into vet school and got into grad school, had to make that choice of which, you know, which road you go down. And I chose going on the nutrition side. So I did master's in you know, ruminant nutrition and halfway through my master's, Marshall Streeter left. So I then shifted over to being under Martin fully instead of just half and then. That's where I became a, quote, microbiologist and then got the opportunity to go to Cornell and study with Jim Russell. And he had been booted out of the animal science department there at Cornell, so he was only in micro. So I was kind of the ambassador of the Russell Lab to the all the guys over in animal and dairy science there at Cornell. So that's when I became a microbiologist. <laughs> and for those who aren't plugged into the microbiology world, uh, Jim Russell would be among the four or five more famous uh, ruminant microbiologists, I guess, in the history of that field. Do you have an anecdote or two about about working with him that you could share with a uh, general audience? PG audience or a G-rated audience? Um, it was stressful. I guess the best way of putting it, I every day that I got up for three years, three and a half years, I got up and the first thing I did every morning was I vomited blood every morning. And then the day that I left Ithaca, that stopped. So it was amazing. And it, it was a great experience because Jim was a brilliant mind, but a intense and stressful human. We'll leave it at that. He's passed away. So, you know, you try not to say, speak too much ill of the dead, but it was a great experience because it bonded all of us that were grad students together very tightly, but it was not the most fun experience on, in the history of mankind. Well, kudos to you for making it through and uh, coming out stronger on the other end. So I think that the time you were in grad school, um, well, maybe maybe it kind of came a little after that. To me, I think is an inflection point in, in gut microbiology, um, and and you can correct me if I misstate this, but it, you kind of were at that stage where it was evolving from being able to only study animals that you could culture in a in a pure culture situation to sort of looking at this mixed soup uh, of something and actually determining what's in there. Can you talk us through that and what it was like to be part of that? Yeah, um, and that really is, we've seen a revolution since then that has really changed how we understand microbes. So up until 
um, the early to mid nineties, you were truly limited to only being able to what you could grow is what you could count. Then we started getting PCR and getting probes and we started understanding archaea, the methanogens are different than bacteria and this. So you could start to vaguely quantify things that you couldn't grow. It wasn't perfect, but you could get a little picture of it. And it just kept a little bit better and better. And along about 2006, I was working with a guy, uh, Scott Dowd, great guy, uh, brilliant, brilliant mind, kind of like you in that regard. But he came to me and said, hey, we've got this new product from, uh, at the time was Roche and Dow, of how do we, you know, we can look at populations, mixed populations, and identify who's there. And it's about... $1,000 a sample, but we can look and see everybody that's there at once. And that's what became known as this next generation sequencing, pyro sequencing. So we were actually the first ones to do it in the gut of a food animal at all. And they tried it in humans, but nobody done it in cattle. So it was this, well, crap, i got a little end of year money. Let's do this little bitty study. And it was the first one that had ever been done using next gen, what we call now next gen sequencing. And Looking back at it, it's a terrible paper. My students look at it and they're like, this is your most highly cited paper. I'm like, yeah, it was the first one. You guys have these programs, these bioinformatics programs that tease everything out. That didn't exist. We were there literally with paper and pencil and drawing things to try to tease anything out of this data set. Because even the you know bioinformatics did not exist at that point. We didn't know the word. And in fact, when you look at that paper, it, we never used the word microbiome in it. That word hadn't even been coined at this point. So a couple of years later, when we started hearing about microbiome, we're like, oh, that's what we did. Okay. And that has really changed things. But now, instead of being $1,000 a sample, and we've got a company that we work with that will do $30 for a sample, and you get a ton of data out of it. So Really, it's more data than what we know how to handle. And we've seen a problem in this where you have a lot of people that can run the microbiome, they get it, and they can look at this raw data, and they look at names that change, and they say, well, your lactobacillus fermentum went down and your lactococcus lactis went up. So there you go. That's your answer. But the reality is, what does that mean to us as producers? What does that mean to somebody trying to feed cattle, trying to produce milk? It doesn't make any real sense. It's a snapshot of what's going on. And so we've got a lot of people just running numbers and they don't know what they're counting, but they're counting a lot, counting it really well. So I, the past uh, five to seven years or 10 years now, I've been trying to step back from that and focus on that big picture. And, you know, you and I have discussed this over scotch at some points or other of you know, what do we need to know out of this population? We need to know who is doing what, who's making products that matter to the animal. And they may make an end product that matters to another microbe that then matters to the animal. But you've got to know what their ecological niches are. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but I've started talking openly this year about it. You know, I call it my Pokemon Go model of rumen microbiology is that we've got to classify these organisms into niches. And you can be parts of more than one niche, 
But that's the way we need to view these organisms is at that ecological guild or niche level rather than just this list of names in Latin that nobody really knows how to pronounce well, but they don't necessarily have much significance. Yeah, there's a lot I agree with there. So yeah, if we, if, if we just get to a list of changes and you can't put it in any context, as how does it help anybody in the real world, right? And there, there's some value in building up a basic knowledge of like the science itself, right? But eventually our job is to try to get that into impacting practices. Right. And we've got to correlate, you know, lists of names with things that we see change, like acetate propanate ratio, methane, uh, degradation of, um, you know, anybody that degrades a lignin, you know, who's involved with NDF disappearance, those things, those real things that matter. But without that context, a list of names is useless. So, you know, we're trying to do both. We're building that database but trying to get to the what does it mean point. And, you know, that's a challenge. And, you know, that's what we're trying yeah. to do. And I don't think I'll succeed in my career, but I think, you know, we're kind of carrying the ball down the field. And, you know, somebody like your grad students or mine will then take it on a little further. Not to use a football analogy since we're national champs twice in a row. <laughs> I knew you'd find a way to stick that in there. I, I knew <laughs> we had to bet on whether I could. And there we go. <laughs> I want to step back, um, and and some people listening to this are probably fully familiar with these things, but just to make sure we're bringing everybody along here. So make sure we define a couple of terms. First of all, microbiome, can you explicitly tell me what you mean with that term? Okay, yeah, that is one of those terms that's misused a lot. And the microbiome is really just saying, it's looking at this genetic mass that is in the rumen. So it's the gen, the DNA or the genetic potential of all the organisms there. And then you sort out which organism belongs to which set of genes. And the microbiome, that genetic potential should represent your microflora or your microbial population composition. We know it's not a hundred percent exactly right because some organisms don't crack open very well or degrade their DNA very quickly. But in general, the microbiome is that microbial genetic potent or genetic material. So people use that interchangeably a lot with instead of microflora or micro, microbial population. I'm guilty of it too, just shorthanding it. And then I, I don't know how often people hear this term, but I'm, I'm used to hearing metagenomics. Um, help me understand, is that is that completely overlapping with microbiome or how do you define that term. And that's an area where there's not a net to me, at least there's not a set definition, but the one that I'm looking at is where you're comparing the microbial population or that microbiome across different animals or different treatments or different groups where you're starting to look instead of down counting at how many leaves have holes in them. You're counting how many trees of the beach or the, or a pine tree there are in a forest that you're starting getting into more to that 30,000 foot view instead of that six inch view. So that's kind of what that metagenomics tries to do. And then you're doing the same sort of thing with metabolomics and all these omics where you're starting to layer these things. And that's where we can start to see these patterns emerging. Okay. So like families of species as opposed to individual species. Right. Families or looking at the niches. 
you know, the yep. say fiber degrading niche, you know, where you're not even worried about their genetics, you're worried about their jobs. And you look at that and then what their end products are. Some are going to make acetate, some will make a little more butyrate. Who, you know, how do you connect those dots and how do you weight those? And it goes back to looking at some old fashioned biochemistry again, looking at specific activities and those things that kind of make the hair on the back of our necks stand up. But when you talk to our grad students now, and I don't know if you've done this, but most of ours don't know those things until I teach them in class because biochemistry departments have moved so far into molecular biology that they've, they're have they neglecting teaching a lot of that basic enzyme yeah. kinetics. Yeah, I think that's true. Heavily nucleotide-based work. Um, so one other question then to kind of put this in context for people that haven't played with this kind of data. When you're talking microbiome, people, at least I, tend to think about bacteria and maybe archaea. What all, if we were going to do this comprehensively, what all kingdoms of life would this encompass? Well, ideally, it will take your bacteria and your archaea, as you mentioned, but look at fungi and protozoa. Because the problem with, you know, why we've neglected protozoa and fungi for so long is protozoa, the only person that's able to grow that currently, grow them really well currently is Jeff Firkins. And I mean, you know Jeff well. Jeff's the master now, but he learned from Burke Doherty. But no one else has been able to grow those organisms in pure culture for more than about two weeks, other than Burke and now Jeff. So we don't have this 50 years of knowledge of what these organisms act like in the test tube. And they depend so much on interactions with other organisms and multiple level, multiple levels of trophism that it's hard to separate them in pure culture which is a problem we learned from the bacteria that these organisms interact so much and change each other's biochemistry that it's hard to look at that and say, this is what this organism does because it depends on its neighbors. So we need to understand the fungi because they're important in degradation, but they need other organisms to help them degrade the forage and remove those end products. So we need to understand how everything works together collectively. And that's a challenge because we don't know much about those protozoa or fungi. I mean, that's a black box. And, you know, even now I kind of look at it and I cringe. I mean, we've got one paper that we're kind of working on, off and on for about five years now, looking at fungi in the room. And it just it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand what's going on. And neither does the fungal person that's involved. So we're just kind of scratching our heads with what is this? We don't understand. That, so that's the complexity of, yeah, even looking at one group. But how many, if you were actually going to get to the species level across those kingdoms, how many <laughs> individual species, if, if you somebody asked you that, what's your best guess right now in a right typical room? Right now, in a typical room, and I'd say there's probably twenty to 25,000 individual species and probably 75,000 strains of organism in there. And that will vary depending on your feed because you've got transient organisms. You've got some that stay constantly some that are carried in by birds, you know, you're overflying birds coming down the flyway, central flyway that carries from one farm to another. So you get a lot of transient organisms that appear and some of those can be pathogens, but I would say 25,000 is probably a pretty good guess. And there's probably a hundred that are major players in the room. 
Now you also have the fecal population, which is going to be different, but it's probably the same order of magnitude. Okay. It's crazy. And if you think about that, I don't, I don't know how many genes a typical prokaryote would have, but I don't know, thousand, let's yeah. say, or maybe it's 500. I don't know. But um, if you think of the cow herself has probably 25 to 30,000 genes, mm -hmm. she's got, at least a hundred times that many swimming in her, in her room. And right. Exactly. And you know, one of the coolest studies that I've seen, um, it was paper from 2017 where they were looking at a cow that they, a dairy cow, and they looked at her gene expression and then they fed these cows, um, a probiotic. And then they looked at the cow's expression of her genes and that's all they did to these cows. And there were 11,000 genes that were up or that were differentially regulated of the cows just by feeding this probiotic. And a lot of those were inflammatory response, growth hormone, uh, toll like signals, you know, all these fancy things. But that's just showing the interaction between the microbes and the animal. And I had no idea that it would ever make that big of a change in genetic expression. So it's kind of put me back on my heels and made me think a little more about it of, you know, how do we do this? You know, is a probiotic kind of like giving them an aspirin? And I know you've done a lot of that work on anti-inflammatories. So, you know, is this a possibility to help, help that along a different biochemical pathway? Right. Yeah. And if you think, if you think about the, the number of species you just described, even if it's only a hundred that are super important, um, the complexity of doing the niches, like you said, I think you said it well, like maybe that's next generation after us that'll accomplish that. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's going to, it's AI is coming into that, that picture where they're starting to figure it out, but we don't know how to tell AI what to look for and what's not real. Cause I mean, AI is just like a dumb dog. It only does what you tell it, but we don't know how to tell it what not to do yet. For sure. Wow. Okay, let's dig in a little bit to the um, to the excellent point you made. I think of you know how do we put some of this knowledge to use for people that are managing cows that are putting diets together for cows that sort of thing. I wonder if you'd have a few insights like from the work you've done in the last fifteen twenty years. What are things that you now think about in terms of nutrition that you maybe wouldn't have or management uh, that you wouldn't have. Uh, before you've done this work? Well, the stuff, like one of my colleagues here, Sha Tao, has done a lot of work with heat stress. And I know you guys have dug into that off and on. And it's hotter down here. So if you want to do heat stress, come on down. We've got you for that. But to see the effect, that two-way effect between the microbes and that heat stress and that physiologic response the animal has to heat stress is mediated to a large degree but how it also looks a lot like acidosis and can lead to acidotic type situations. And, you know, Lance Baumgard's done a lot of that too, along with you and, you know, everybody else that has worked in that area. And to me, that's really fascinating in trying to work out what microbes are playing a role in that is something I think has a lot of impact in the near future of can we take the population and add it in that'll help tamp down that hot response and looking at just you know simple things like how do we re 
you know, feed higher levels of grain. Well, there's a lot of products coming down the pipe of things to reduce lactate accumulation, increase lactate utilization and conversion to propionate. You know, things that we worked on 30 years ago that we shelved because we didn't understand what they were doing. Now we kind of have a better idea so that we can start going down that road. So I think we're in that place where we're starting to be able to tell people how you can beat or how you can do a little bit better with acidosis, how we can bring down bloat, some of these first level conditions that we saw. And then we're trying to get to those more subtle things like, you know, is hindgut acidosis real? Well, you kind of think it is. Some of the data shows that it is. But how does that link with things like hemorrhagic bowel? Does it set the stage? Does it create an organism that's going to cause hemorrhagic bowel? Does it just create an environment where that could pop up? You know, how does that relate? And that's like three levels of connection to get there. So, you know, we're starting to see a little bit deeper than we did. But, you know, it, unfortunately, every great answer leads to more questions at this point. Yeah. Still. So, I mean, you know, I've seen, you know, you talked about it, how there's been this explosion, but you see it running about a 10 year cycle. And this is like my third time seeing where the micro is popular and then people are like, ah, oh, that's stupid. And then you come back again. So, you know, you're always up and down throughout your career because people tend to overpromise and underproduce. You know, the biology limits what we can do. And, you know, again, right now we're at a place where people are selling, let's do the microbiome of your animals and that's going to help you feed them better. I've done this as long as anybody. I can't tell you what's a good microbiome or what's a bad microbiome. And if I can't tell you that, I, you know, not to be arrogant, but I don't think there's anybody that really can. I don't know what is a good one. So, you know, we're not at that point where the microbiome can tell us everything, but it's starting to fill in those blank spaces. So, you know, I encourage people to watch out. If someone tells you the microbiome is the answer to everything, well, no, it's not, but it could help us get there. Todd, I think you occupy a really cool niche in in gut microbiology field because I don't know very many people who have a foot both in, I would say, production efficiency. You have an interest in how do you how do you use the microbiome to make animals more efficient, but also in pathogens, right? And in in both human pathogens that are transmitted through food, but also I know you have some interest in things that are causing problems for the, for the animal itself. And part of that, I think, is uh, understanding maybe the term you'd use would be different, but pathobionts, these, these organisms that are normally in the gut but aren't always pathogenic. Can you, first of all, explain what that term means and how you think about that in terms of managing the gut of an animal? Yeah, and that is a whole, I mean, we could have hours of discussion because really what you're talking about is the fact that there's some organisms that live in the gut and they're just there. They're like a commensal. They're normally there. But when the right conditions come around or the right opportunity, it presents itself. And you got to remember the gut is like any other ecosystem, like a jungle or a desert or a pasture. If there's a niche that opens up because you say you went through your pasture and sprayed it for hogweed, well, Johnson grass will have an opportunity to come in and take over that space. That's the same thing going on in the gut. 
And if there's something that happens, whether it's heat stress or dietary shift, that can open up a hole in, the, in that ecosystem where a pathogen will increase its population. And once they once pathogens reach a certain population, most of them, they have what's called quorum sensing, where they detect, because of their biochemistry, other members, there's enough of us around, so let's make this toxin, or let's make this chemical that's going to open up the um, epithelial tissue for us to penetrate the animal. So that's where you start running into problems. So we've done a lot of work over the years of looking at that normal carriage of pathogens and what's normal, what isn't, and trying to understand how we can use things like diet to stabilize the population and keep those pathogens out. And that's kind of been a lot of what I've done over the years. And one of the jokes I tell people is I tell the microbiologists, I'm a ruminant nutritionist. I tell the nutritionists, I'm a microbiologist. And you don't let those guys talk to each other, and then you're fine. But until then, you know, you kind of play a little bit dumb. So then I also tell the food safety people, I'm a nutritionist and a microbiologist. And so, you know, you kind of play off those three corners. But it's been really interesting sitting in that spot throughout my career. Do you think there's possibilities to, and I think you kind of got at this a little bit, but do you think there's actually opportunities to, rather than try to get rid of, say, salmonella, that we find strategies to keep it in its lane, so to speak, of it in its happy place so it stays commensal in its physiology? Yeah, I think there's the possibility of that, of giving it a nutrient that's going to keep it kind of non-pathogenic, but also by putting organisms in that compete with it where you we can keep its population lower. Yeah, you're not going to completely eliminate something like that because Frankly, salmonella is just a gut bug, the same way E. coli is just a gut bug. They just happen to have the ability to become pathogenic in the right circumstances so that if we can keep their populations down and keep from those perturbations happening where they can suddenly pop up and take over, like you know, warlord when there's a election that goes bad in the third world, and all of a sudden this warlord takes over the, the country, you don't want salmonella doing that. So if we can keep that from happening where everything is just calm and you don't have those perturbations, then I think it's a really good opportunity. Fantastic. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Victus Transition from DSM Animal Nutrition and Health can help your cattle get the beta carotene they need to improve fertility. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt. They provide high quality economical feed ingredients for ruminants like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. Well, um, past experience points to the fact that you and I could chat about these things for five or six hours. We don't have that kind of window of time. <laughs> so I'm going to jump, jump to our 
three questions that we ask of every guest and, and uh, I'm excited to see what you have to say here. So one thing we throw at everybody, do you have a favorite book or resource related to dairy that you turn to a lot? Honestly, the best dairy resource, at least in the dairy that, you know, cause I'm not really a dairy guy. I mean, my grandfather, you can see in the background where one of my grandfather's milk cans is here. Um, I do, you know, I work in the gut so much. So primarily I still go with Hungate, who's kind of the godfather of rumen micro, his book from the 1960s, the, um, the rumen and its microbes. And even though it's 60 years old now, it's still surprisingly valid. The names have changed, but everything he says in there is so insightful and brilliant. It's unreal. What about your favorite book or resource outside of ag? Ooh, so you mean like real world books? Yeah, oh, anything, um, novel, anything. Honestly, there is a series of books. I'm a history nerd by um, Gerhard Volker that was on the rise and fall of Hitler. And it was very, you know, historically detailed and researched, and it was fantastic to read it. And, you know, you can see a lot of parallels with what's going on in the world today, you know, because history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there's a heck of a lot of rhyming from the 1930s going on now. So it's really kind of look at that and you're like, all right, there's I see what everybody is doing right now. And it's a little scary because, you know, you can kind of see what Putin's doing and so forth. So it's really you know, if you like history and you kind of want to think about the world events in that big picture, it's a great set of books. Okay. Put it on my list. Last question. And in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? The best answer I have is the same one that I use for beef cattle on that one is do they wear a white shirt? If they're wearing a white shirt all the time and it's not stained, that's somebody you don't want on your farm because they're not getting around animals. I mean, the true thing, what I tell my students is get in, get dirty with your animals, get manure on your shoes, get it on your clothes. You know, that's why I wear t-shirts all the time. So I'm going to ruin my clothes nine times out of 10, but smell things, taste the feed, taste the grass or whatever you're looking at in your animals to understand how your animals are experiencing things. I mean, you know, we're not getting in the temple granny where I'm getting down on the ground and crawling through the shoots. But if you taste the feed and something tastes off, well, there's probably something wrong. That's why your animals aren't eating. I mean, it's simple, but, you know, looks, smells, sounds, and tastes really impact these cattle. And somebody who never gets dirty and never looks like a slob, because there's a lot of nutritionists that drive really pretty trucks and wear really nice clothes. And, you know, I don't know that I buy into that. What are your thoughts on my theory? No, I like that. Plus, I thought you were going to get into the hygiene hypothesis too. And then plus they won't have allergies, right? Yeah, well, you know, the hygiene hypothesis, you and I have talked on that for years and I still believe that, but yeah. Makes a lot of sense. That's great. That's, that's a good, uh, good message uh, for students, especially uh, going out to the real world, so to speak. Well, Todd, it's always a lot of fun chatting with you. Thanks. Uh, I'd love to chat with you more and we're going to have to connect sometime soon. But thank you for being on. All right. Sounds good, man. I look forward to seeing you again soon, brother. 
So that's it for another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. If you haven't subscribed already, hit the button so you don't miss the next episode, and we'll see you next time.